1: the show goes on this is the official show on the fish stripes podcast channel where we cover your miami marlins every day in our own way i'm eli sussman you know that managing editor of fish stripes it's a lot easier to record these pods coming off a win going into the off day coming off a win for sure in what was a stressful but ultimately successful series for the Marlins in Atlanta against the Braves, taking two out of three, sweating it out until the very end, heading into this new week in second place in the National League East Division. Most of this podcast episode is my interview with Rod Allen. He's the new analyst for Ballet Sports Florida and Marlins Radio. We get into the work that he's doing covering the team this season, how the job came about in the first place, and really more of it is about His background. Decades in the game as a player, as a coach, and as a broadcaster, an award-winning broadcaster most of that time with the Detroit Tigers organization, so the timing could not have been more perfect with, of course, Miguel Cabrera reaching his 3,000-hit milestone. We get into some of Rod's Miggy stories And so much more. It was a really great conversation. I was delighted by how easy it was to talk to Rod and how excited he was on the other side of it. So I hope that comes through as you're listening to that interview in just a few minutes. Before that, on the other side of this break, we're going to get into the small pod portion where I break down each game of that series between the Marlins and Braves, the individual plays that swung it one way or the other, and general observations that. To your happy place, for a happy price. Go to your happy price Priceline. So the three game set between the Marlins and the Braves starting with Friday night, a three nothing shutout loss for the Marlins. Kyle Wright. I was looking at the stats entering this game and I had high expectations for them and he surpassed them. He was dealing six shutout innings for the former first round draft pick, the one who you may remember had a similar outing against the Marlins in the postseason in 2020. Outside of that, for most of his major league career to this point, it had been a struggle and something has very clearly flipped for him with the way that he attacks the strike zone with his really special arsenal of pitches. So the key moment in this one was Wright staying in through the sixth inning. The Marlins were able to load the bases, finally get something going against him in the top of the sixth. They had Avasael Garcia up in that situation. It was just a one-run game at that time. Instead of going to the pen, Brian Schnicker sticks with Wright, gets Garcia to a grounder right back to the pitcher to end the threat. Back to the mound. He's going to get out of it. Six. Uh, The next inning was one that was probably just as notable from a Marlins fan perspective. Again, just a one-run game at that point. Jazz Chisholm Jr. coming to the plate for the fourth time in the game, having struck out the previous three times. Instead of letting him face a left-hander, they bring in pinch hitter Brian Dela Cruz, who doesn't get the job done either. To see that move backfire on the Marlins was just the latest Hole to poke in Don Mattingly's in game maneuvering to see Jazz removed in that situation after being very productive the previous few games. Matt Olsen was the one that added some critical insurance for the Braves with a two run double off of Richard Blyer. As I said, the final score three to nothing in this one. Then on Saturday, Things for a while seem to be heading in another bad direction. Uh, Eliezer Hernandez was not good in this one. He allowed a home run early. He allowed two other home runs in the middle innings. And overall, this was uh, probably his worst outing of the year. He's had two pretty bad ones already early on this year for a guy that is clearly the weak link in this Marlins rotation as we have one eye towards Triple A Jacksonville and some of the exciting reinforcements, some alternatives to Eliezer that will certainly become very top of mind as we move into the month of May but the Marlins win this one 9-7 they overcome that early deficit there were three late lead changes in consecutive half innings in this in the top six bottom six top seventh between this one Uh, overall the bullpen really outstanding with the exception of Sean Armstrong in this but everybody else was just about Perfect to uh, nail this one down for the Marlins. Once they went ahead for good on Garrett Cooper's two-run single with the bases loaded. That's looped over Albies and into right field. A base hit. One run is in. Here comes the second. Garrett Cooper comes through with the two RBI single, and the Marlins jump back in front. It's eight to seven. I buried the lead a little bit. The star of this game was Jazz Chisholm Jr. coming off that really frustrating opening game of the series. He went four for six, a triple shy of the cycle, eight total bases, and two stolen bases. I looked up that combination on StatHead and found that Gary Sheffield is the only other Marlins player ever to do that in a single game. Eight total bases, two stolen bases, put his thumbprint all over this game for the Marlins. He finished the night actually... Leading the majors in slugging percentage So the Marlins the high-scoring game the Marlins have played this year the longest game they'd played this year Although Sunday gave them a pretty good challenge in that department They end up winning it. Thanks to the bullpen. Thanks to jazz Thanks to that clutch hit by Cooper as well as some nice ones from Avisail Garcia He had a pair of runs batted in in this game and two hits as well after having that low point the night before, so you just see how much things swung for a few individual players from one night to the next. Miguel Rojas was strangely a last-minute scratch from the lineup with flu-like symptoms, highly unusual to see that kind of thing happen right before the start of the game. As it turns out, it was a COVID scare, but all indications are that he's negative for that. and. On the other side of this off day, fingers crossed, he will be feeling better and ready to get back into the game. So that brings us to Sunday, the rubber game of the series. Rojas is out for this one. Not on the IL, but just Marlins playing shorthanded in in this finale without him. The key figure to follow was Jesus Lizardo. He was dominant in his first start of the regular season against the Angels. Followed that up by being pretty bad in his previous outing during the homestand. And in this one, It was very similar to what we saw in that season debut. He was excellent against a good Braves lineup. Only goes five innings, and he was really challenged in that fifth inning. Finally allows one run to cross the plate, but otherwise really excellent. How many strikeouts? About seven or eight in this one. Let's see. Yeah, eight strikeouts, only two hits allowed. Uh, Both of those to Austin Riley, so not not a bad guy to allow a little damage against understandable in that situation things looking pretty good for lizardo as we'll get to in just a moment the marlins build a nice lead in the middle and later innings going up five to one at a certain point in this game and then in the ninth it all starts to slip away from them an all too familiar circumstance for a marlins team that in recent years has blown other late leads in Atlanta against the Braves. Tanner Scott comes in with a four-run lead, and he doesn't even get out of that ninth inning. Working with the shadows in his favor, too, due to the timing of this game, the pitchers seem to have the upper hands the final couple innings, and Scott could not take advantage of it, unless several very hard-hit balls in this one, including a home run to Austin Riley. Riley was the one almost single-handedly responsible for keeping the Braves in this one with those two doubles against Lazardo and then the home run against Scott that made it a one-run game. Lewis Head gets called in. He allows a double to Marcelo Zuna, and thankfully from there he's able to weasel his way out of that situation, including with a strikeout at the very end of, I think it was Eddie Rosario, getting him on a perfectly placed fastball up into the outside part of the zone. Just outstanding pitch. His best pitch as a Marlins to this point to earn his first career save as well. One ball, two strikes, swing and a miss for strike three. It's a Marlins win. The dust settles. Marlins win two out of three in this series. Both teams score exactly 14 runs, very evenly played series that could have tilted either way. Uh, some general takeaways, John Birdie, outstanding in the two games that he started both of those in place of Miguel Rojas his on base percentage one of the highest in baseball right now for anybody playing considerable amount of time well over 500 to this point Anthony Bender was nowhere to be seen he has not pitched since Wednesday for what Don Mattingly just says is him being a little banged up wouldn't really specify beyond that it's, it'll be interesting how he's looking on the other side of the off day as well. You know, they could retroactively put him on the injured list if this is something that is lingering a bit. We know that he, kind of like Miggy Rowe, both of them have not performed well this year. And if it takes a little time off on the IL to get them fully right, then so be it, because both of them will be very important. Yeah, my larger takeaway about the bullpen at this point in the year is that it is pretty much as advertised. In not a good way. It is a mediocre bullpen. There are just not any individual guys in this bullpen that you wholeheartedly trust. Kind of by default, by process of elimination, Cole Sulser is the guy at this very moment. While Dylan Floro still wakes his makes his way back from the IL, that's not a comfortable position to be in, to be honest. So the the team to this point, the bullpen has not really been cost them all that much compared to you know a typical pen to this point it's just that moving forward you can see the flashing red signs they were very fortunate that they didn't screw up on Sunday otherwise the tone of this podcast of this entire early season would be a whole lot different if they'd blown that lead as they were so close to doing in that game that's an area that will need to be addressed on the catching side uh, Peyton Henry not making much of an impression I think it speaks volumes just about how little he has played only starting three or four games and in several of those being removed early for pinch hitters. So he hasn't even finished all those games. He still remains hitless on the season in a small sample size. A lot of us were surprised that he was the one that won the backup catcher's job. And he really hasn't done anything either offensively or defensively to show us why he deserves to be on the roster over a Nick Fortes or... Non-roster guys like Williams Estadio or Lorenzo Quintana. They have some guys at AAA that are knocking on the door. Henry not doing much with this opportunity. It just speaks volumes how Jacob Stallings has played in 14 of the first 15 Marlins games. I got to imagine that is more than any other catcher in baseball. It's a position that needs maintenance even for the best guys out there. It's just not sustainable if they are relying on Stallings this much. And just finishing off with some thoughts on the veteran bats, Avesail Garcia and Jesus Aguilar. Both of them had their moments in this series. I think Aguilar in general, this was certainly his best week of the season. A lot of solid contact and a couple big hits in the moment. Still no extra base hits from him all season long. And Garcia, despite doing some nice things on both Saturday and Sunday, he's still swinging and missing at an alarming rate, really making poor decisions up there in the box. Both those guys have been playing close to every day. Garcia's had a few days off for maintenance, but Jesus has been there almost every single day, and they're hurting the team. So, Difficult managerial decisions ahead as to what exactly to do with both of those guys. I I think the easy answer is that they should just not be batting in the top half of the lineup, and they shouldn't be automatically ridden in there uh, right now just because they're not impacting the game all that much in a positive way at a time where the Marlins have had really nice surprises from some of their other, quote, role players. Something to be watching very carefully moving forward is how close those veteran guys are to, quote, fixing themselves, because for the moment, still very much a work in progress. Before we get into the Rod Allen interview, a weekly tradition on these Monday episodes, my Fish Prospects of the Week. I'm recording this right before the end of the Pensacola game, that being the final game to be played here on Sunday in the Marlins organization. And without even seeing the ends, I feel comfortable awarding hitter of the week to Gerard Encarnacion. In his second season with Blue Wahoos, he is on a hot streak that we haven't seen from him since maybe ever, maybe since the middle of 2019 when he was in low A ball, just ripping the cover off the ball. He had hits in every single game entering this Sunday finale, which looks like it'll be his worst game of the week to this point. It's been interesting to see him playing so much outfield after he was kind of splitting time between the corner spots and first base last year but he is seeing a lot of time in right field kind of holding his own out there and when he's hitting for so much power some of the longest home runs that any marlins prospect has hit Mirara Encarnacion was ice cold at the plate but now he's heating up here's a drive left center field way back and gone And it's more than just a home run suit. That's kind of why he's an easy easy choice for this. All the clutch hits that he's getting using the whole field, spraying line drives all over the place for a guy that is in a pretty important year in his development, already on the 40-man roster, the clock is ticking on his development, and he is knocking on the door to get moved up to AAA and potentially sneak his way onto the major league roster at some point before the end of the year. On the pitching side, I'm going with Braxton Garrett, who's kind of just barely on that line between prospect and post-prospect status because of all the time he's already spent in the big leagues. In A Jacksonville, his start this year facing Ronald Acuna Jr. and the AAA Braves affiliate goes seven innings, only allows two hits, and one one run that I was pretty sure was unearned. He was awesome in this one. I did see quite a portion of it where he looked unsteady early and then he kind of cruised through the middle and later innings. Changeup looked really good from Braxton Garrett, which he really needs because his fastball is the weakest part of his repertoire. So he needs those secondary pitches to really click. Honorable mentions on both sides. Uh, on the hitting side, I want to go with utility player Charles LeBlanc, minor league rule five draft pickup with A Jacksonville, playing some second base, playing some third base, playing some corner outfield spots, and he's been raking too. On the pitching side, I'm going really unorthodox here with a reliever, Josh Simpson, the left-hander for A Pensacola, and I'm just kind of squeezing him in, in here, even though one of his best appearances actually came The previous week, on on Saturday the previous week, I'm cheating a little bit just to shout him out because he has been right up there with the most dominant reliever at any level of the Marlins organization this year. Uh, Overall, this season, as I'm recording this, eight innings pitched, three hits, 17 strikeouts, striking out over 60% of batters faced. And if you just want to zoom in on the last week plus, from April 16th to today, five and two-thirds innings 13 strikeouts including a seven strikeout relief appearance on back in april 16th and the pitch fastball cold strike three and the blue wahoos finally have their first home win of the season so that's a name you probably haven't heard that much i do believe he was in the arizona fall league for the team last fall um a surprise selection there who didn't really do much out in the fall league to be completely honest with you guys Yet, the way that he has performed heading into this year, again, at the double-A level, not that far away from being a serious consideration. So now we switch gears a little bit. My exclusive interview with Rod Allen, Bally Sports Florida, covering the 2022 Marlins, covering his background in baseball, and of course, covering Miguel Cabrera on a very special weekend for the future Hall of Famer. Enjoy! Welcome back to the official show here on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. Eli Sussman here with a guy that, to be honest, has been atop my wish list of guests for almost a full month now, ever since he came back around the Marlins. It's the first time in a while that I've had the honor to do an extended conversation with a true baseball lifer. And that's exactly what Rod Allen is. He's new to this gig analyzing the Marlins for Valley Sports Florida, but he's been in the game for decades as a World Series winning player, a professional coach, an Emmy award-winning broadcaster, and he's still going with that broadcasting thing. I had high expectations for what he'd be like in the studio for Valley Sports Florida, and it's been off to a great start over there, Rod. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording the timing, speaking to you could not be any more convenient. Uh, People are going to love hearing from you about the Marlins and of course about Miguel Cabrera as he's on the verge of 3,000 career hits. I appreciate the time, Rod.
0: Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. And uh, you you make my uh, resume sound very good there. And I, I appreciate that. But uh, you're absolutely right. I have been in professional baseball for decades. I signed as a player uh, way back in 1997. So no, excuse me, 77, excuse yeah. me, 1977. when I came out of high school, excuse me, but uh, Uh, It's just a joy to be here. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you. But you brought up uh, Miguel Cabrera. Uh, He is by far the best right-handed hitter I've ever been around on a day-to-day basis. The things that Miggy can do on a baseball field were just remarkable. All the milestones. I've seen so many of those. Uh, He hits the best pictures in the game. He had so much fun with the opposing team, the fans. Uh, I don't think Miggy could have had a better career as a player. And he is no doubt a first ballot Hall of Famer for me. Just a special special gifted athlete.
1: Yeah. People love Maggie Down here. We're gonna to get into him in a little bit with how he started his career with the Marlins and had so much success right before your eyes when you were with Fox Sports Detroit, uh, through the prime of his career. Uh, first I wanted people to understand your history with the Marlins, which goes back a lot further than people could imagine. You already mentioned your playing career professionally through the late 70s, the 80s, the early 90s, and then right out of playing, become a coach with a brand new Florida Marlins organization when they were just getting started as a minor league hitting instructor. For people that aren't familiar with uh, that job and some of the players you worked with in the minors, because some of them went on, at least in some part, due to your help, you know, becoming really successful big leaguers.
0: Well, I started my coaching career in 1992 with the Marlins, and it was pretty much the first time they were getting ready to play even before uh, they started playing a major league game we had assembled some minor league teams and i was very very fortunate to be a, a part of that first wave of coaches uh, john Bowles uh hired me uh he's still a really good friend to this day dave Dombrowski, who our paths crossed way back in 77 when i was a player with the white Sox, dave was a very young executive with the white Sox, so our paths crossed way back then so dave and i had already known one another he was in the organization. So I think it made it an easy hire for me. I was fresh off the field as a player. I had just finished playing three years in Japan, and there really wasn't a place for me to play in the United States. And I always gravitated to hitting. So uh, had I not been broadcasting, I think I would have been a big league hitting coach, but uh, they hired me as an instructor. And I worked with the very youngest kids that they had there in extended spring training, also an A-ball for a couple of years uh, in Kane County. And some of the players were really good players. Gary Hughes was the scouting director back in those days. And Gary Hughes was known as a tremendous evaluator. And we had some really good players. I had Luis Castillo at one point in time. Uh, Kevin Millar won a batting title for me when me, he was in A-ball. Uh, kept uh, Mc, Billy McMillan in the outfield. Tom Dunwoody, uh Roscoe's. Dave Byrd played in the big leagues. So many of those kids. Alvin you know. Uh, Mike Redman uh, was one of my catchers there. And you could see back then how much Redman was a leader of course he went on to manage a, a Marlins squad for a few years but he was always the backup to Charles Johnson and he also backed up Joe Maurer when he went to Minnesota he had a very bright mind so I was around a lot of really good people there and of course after three years I went out to Arizona in the same capacity as a job which would turn into me being a broadcaster but I had a lot of fun just learning from that group of men uh, John Bowles and David Dabrowski and the rest of the guys that I worked with as a very young coach
1: yeah And just to go all the way forward to now, bring you back to uh, Valley Sports Florida. uh, How did that all come about? Us with the Marlins, we knew at the end of the (laughs) 2021 season that there was going to be an opening for more analysts on the network. They're making a change. uh, And obviously the lockout happened in the middle. So I'm curious how that whole process went, whether um, what was the first contact about potentially coming to Miami to do this?
0: Well, I had heard toward the tail end of the year that there was going to be an opening in one of the Bally affiliates, and I didn't know which one it was, uh, but I was alerted by a very good friend of mine uh, that maybe you should throw your hat in that ring. I had been out of the game for about three years, and I wanted to get back into baseball. That's no question about that. I love baseball, love analyzing baseball, but you know, these broadcasters' jobs, uh, they don't grow on trees, and especially for a career minor league player like myself, I wasn't a a huge major league name and you know a lot of those guys are the guys that have the big league broadcasting gigs. not career minor leaguers that spent 15 years in the minors and three years in japan All these jobs usually don't come to guys uh, like us but uh, i really excelled at the job when i had it for 21 years i threw my name in that hat uh, down in miami i got an interview uh, i went down there i interviewed in front of some marlins people i interviewed in front of some valleys people and some very prominent people And apparently I nailed the interview um, with my broadcast skills, uh, and they offered me the job. And I thought it was just going to be on television, pre-games and games, uh, but that turned into radio, which was my first love of broadcasting games. And I thank Jason for that over the Marlins for uh, providing me with that opportunity. So uh, that's how I got the job. I mean, I knew the right people. They got me in the door. Some people said some very nice things about me. Uh, the way that I handle my business, the way that I've handled my life, and uh, they gave me an opportunity to shine in that in that interview, and they end up pulling my my uh, my my hat uh, my name out of the hat. So I'm elated to be here. The people have been uh, just wonderful to me.
1: And you made it sound like an easy decision to at least go back into broadcasting. I'm curious about <laughs> that because I was familiar with you before you came to the Marlins. You know, following along what you do on uh, social media. And how you were you were staying busy, staying around your family. Um, right. So was was that an easy that really was an easy call for you to go back? Was there a certain point where you just realized that this family time, there was a there was a way to balance the family time and the work? Well,
0: if if, if anybody has been a part of a, an organization or a fraternity, and sometimes we in baseball, we say we're in a fraternity, those of us that played in the big leagues. I mean, it really hasn't been that many major leagues over the course of the history of the game i don't know exactly what the numbers are but there ain't that many guys that put on a big league uniform and played the game Uh, and then when you get around that that fraternity and you have that every day and i had that basically for 40 years and and i missed that Mm -hmm. and so even though the family was great you know we had a couple of additions as far as grandkids are concerned and they were wonderful Uh, they kept your mind going they keep you young they keep you fresh Uh, but i love baseball and, and i wanted to talk some baseball again and i wanted to get back in the game and uh and I'm happy to be back in the game. So it was an easy decision for me to come back.
1: Right. The announcement about you joining Bally Sports Florida only came about a month ago, uh, right around spring training. Uh, did, did you know before that, that this was coming together? Did they have to like officially wait until after the lockout? It just seems I like.
0: Know. I didn't know. I mean, I interviewed, I mean, a couple of months ago, you know, so, I mean, I don't know what decision was made, but I was getting a little antsy. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I knew that I had a very good interview. I knew I knew the right people. Uh, I kept in contact uh, with Brett over at uh, uh, Valley Sports Florida. And, uh, you know, I knew I was still in the mix. And I didn't know how it would shake out. And uh, I finally got a call from him uh, one day. I mean, very close to spring training. As soon as he gave me the call, I hung up the phone. I'm making plans to get down to spring training because I got to learn a whole new organization. So it was late. But, uh, you know, uh, God is always on time. So I had no problem with it, you know, when he did finally give me a call.
1: Yeah, yeah, glad it worked out, and that. Uh, and we're gonna get into this team later on about this 22 model team and what you were able to learn during spring training on um, studying up kind of at the last minute from what you were able to do. What I wanted to do in the middle here, of course, is talk about kind of the man of the hour all across baseball, Miguel Cabrera, as he's reaching another milestone, and arguably this is you know, the most prestigious one that you can reach as an active player, getting to 3,000 career hits. We're recording this. On Friday, as he's at two nine nine nine. He was close to it just the day before. And fingers crossed that he gets it over the weekend. So that when people listen to this, he'll have already achieved that milestone. He was already a very established star player for the Marlins when it got traded to the Tigers uh 14 and a half years ago. And as as you mentioned, up top, you were already with the team covering the Tigers, winning Emmy Awards. Uh, on a team without him, but uh, I'm sure you were familiar with him and what he had accomplished with the Marlins. Uh, when did that, your thinking about him change, where at first it's like, this is a great player coming to the Tigers too. This is one of the greatest players ever. What were the moments and the interactions with him that made you realize how special he was?
0: Well, I knew about Miguel Cabrera, obviously when he was with uh, the Florida Marlins, because uh, of who he was and, and the, the talent that he had. Uh, everybody in baseball, if you were in baseball, you knew about Miguel Cabrera. And when Dave Dombrowski was able to pull off that trade, acquiring him, and also Dontrell Willis, uh, it was probably one of the best trades um, that uh, in the last 20 years. I mean, there's been some other ones like that. I don't really want to go into that. But just to get a player of that stature to come to your club, uh, the team was already a good team. I mean, the team had already done the World Series a couple of years before that. You had Verlander in play. You had a lot of talented people. Maybe was supposed to be that final piece. A team didn't play well that very very first year he got there. I think Miggy was pressing a little bit, trying to do a little bit too much. But once he started to relax, you saw the best right-handed hitter in the sport. Uh, unbelievable talent, just the way that uh, he would make his teammates better, how he would make his coaches better. He would even make the opposing players better because so many guys studied Miggy's swing over the years. J.D. Martinez comes to mind, saying that he studied Miggy's swing, and it really helped him turn his entire career around. But uh, what Miggy had, you couldn't teach. He said he learned baseball from his mom, uh, who was uh, an Olympian softball player uh, in Venezuela. He talks about his uncle at age seven uh, teaching him how to hit the ball the other way, where Miguel has gotten 70% of his hits, even up the way or the opposite way. He hit the ball to right field for a right hander better than some left handers did. But the things that he had really, he, uh, you, just, you just can't teach. You just can't teach what. Uh, Miggy had as far as the, the persona, the grace, and just the skill. I mean, to win batting titles at six feet five inches and 265 pounds is extraordinary. Uh triple crown, first one in decades, MVPs, all-star appearances, that smile and, and just the love affair with Miguel Cabrera, just so special. And one of the things that is really special about for me with Miggy, when he wanted to show out, He would hit home runs this is in batting practice and everybody knew he would do this because he did it more than once he would take a home run he would hit one right down the right field line the next home run next pitch right center field next pitch straight away center field home runs next pitch left center field next pitch left field he had that kind of talent that he could do whatever he wanted to do and not only did he do it in batting practice he proved that he could do it in the game on many, many nights. Just a, a special player, and it was just an honor to, to watch him on a day-to-day basis uh, with a front-row seat, and uh, he's going to the Hall of Fame, there's no question, first ballot.
1: He is, he's in year 15 now with the Tigers, year 20 in the major leagues That's after playing the first five with the Marlins. You mentioned in there the connection that he had Um well with the community with the fans over there which is something that i think Marlins fans are kind of jealous about because with the Marlins they wanted to have him a lot longer obviously and uh, they haven't had the experience of having a player who's been who's just been that consistent piece of a team for an extended period of time what what is that relationship he had with the fans and how they grew to adore him and celebrate him even as he's reached this stage of his career he's not an mvp anymore but it seems like that love is still the same
0: Well, he had a foundation there that he started along with his wife, and uh, it really provided a lot of resources for uh, the community. He was always everywhere they asked him to go. And, of course, him just being the face of the team. uh, Everywhere that he would go, he would treat people with tremendous respect. And I think that's what people honor about you. Not only are you a great player, but are you are a good person off the field? And you became a really good person off the field. And as far as the Marlins are concerned, I mean, uh, you just know that at some point in time, at least then, you, never, you don't know how things are going to go in the future. But uh, sometimes it's hard to retain a player like a Miguel Cabrera if you don't have those resources to pay him that kind of money that he commands. He's a bona fide superstar. He will go down as one of the best right-handed hitters in the game, period. I mean, he's up there with Willie Mays and those cats.
1: And if you had to predict it, what kind of hits do you think it's going to be that is going to give him that milestone? I think I already have an idea with what you mentioned about him using the other, other field, but I'm curious, uh, what do you think would be the most fitting way for him to reach that milestone?
0: I think a double uh, to right center field from Miguel Ferreira. A double to right center field, stand
1: up double. Tucks the left shoulder and as he cacks the bat over the right, the one-one, ground ball. Base hit into right! 3,000 for Miguel Co- for someone that has seen, like I said, the majority of his hits, how many years uh, together with him? 11 seasons? That, yeah. Yeah, you, you saw the very, very best of Miggy. Um, and I, I think the last thing I wanted to touch on is just the fact that he was so, his durability. To reach this kind of milestone, you not only have to play 20 years, but you have to be an everyday player for almost all of those 20 years. Um, and to do it at that size, there are a lot of other bigger guys in baseball that you worry about holding up when they reach that age of his career. I think to me, that's one of them, as much as his pure hitting talent amazes me, it's the fact that he's been able to stay on the field and play that many games at that size that kind of blows my mind.
0: Well, I mean, I told you, uh, you know, a little earlier that Miggie's awfully gifted and some of the talent that he has, I mean, there's no doubt that Uh, The Lord, when he stopped by his house, uh, he gave him a little bit extra. I mean, to do what he has done at that level for so long and that size uh, is just remarkable. And he kept himself in pretty good shape. I mean, uh, it's not easy to stay in shape that many years, but he has done that along with I'm sure that the training staff in Florida and also uh, Detroit, which is very good.
1: We're speaking with Rod Allen of Valley Sports Florida here. Uh, A couple more things about the Detroit days because I look back on it and I'm pretty sure even though the Marlins and Tigers, they didn't play each other very often. There was one time at the end of the 2013 season where, uh, the Henderson Alvarez, no hitter in Miami. And I'm pretty sure you were on that trip and made that call, which I I wanted to get your perspective on that because that was one of the wildest endings in in Marlins history. That's a game that we talk about a lot, at least in, in the Marlins community. Um, But as somebody that has been around the game for so long at that point, you've seen other no-hitters. But what do you remember from that particular game because of how unusual it ended and for it to still be a no-hitter? It's uh, something that you probably haven't seen elsewhere, right? No,
0: haven't seen anything like that. And I knew uh, Alvarez from, I'm not sure if he was his first stop with you guys or if he had played somewhere before he got to. Other the Martins, but I remember that game like it was yesterday. Um, that was the final weekend of the year. The Tigers were already in the playoffs and they were already in postseason mode, not to take anything from away from uh, Alvarez. He pitched remarkable that day, but I'm not sure if everybody on our squad played that day, if we were really looking to win the game, if we were looking to rest guys uh, getting ready for the postseason. Uh, it turned out that when we went into the postseason that year, we didn't perform very well, so maybe we should have, you know, maybe – you know, put our best team out there that weekend. But I think we got swept uh, that weekend down in Florida at the end of the year. So we didn't go into the postseason the way that we really wanted to, but that was a bizarre game. I think it was, what, 0-0 until, you know, very late in the contest, but it was an odd game. I do remember that.
1: Yeah. for I'm sure most of the listeners remember, but in case you don't, Henderson Alvarez, obviously nationally game, he has to bat for himself and the bottom of the ninth yeah. inning it was still no score. Yeah. He was on the on deck circle. <laughs> uh, pre- not preparing to hit for himself they had no idea what was going to happen if the game remained tied and went to a 10th inning but uh, fortunately, it was a wild pitch that ends up deciding the game right there and so he just wearing a batting helmet he's like celebrating pitching a no hitter that's awesome. so crazy as we transition to the 2022 marlins uh there was one other guy that you had experience covering in detroit uh, way back in the day somebody that they called mini Miggy, uh, back then, obviously Garcia, um, who, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, if you look at him from a distance, you see the similarities between, uh, him and Miggy. He came up with the Tigers, didn't spend long with them, but they traded him in the division to the White Sox. So we got to watch him for several more years, head to head and have a couple really great years, um, in that standpoint so he, he signed with the marlins you know before you signed with with the marlins but now getting to cover him uh, again what do you remember about the start of his career and the kind of player that he is even at this stage of his career
0: well all you heard uh, you know while he was in the minor leagues was how you know he looked a lot like miguel cabrera and he idolized miguel cabrera they were kind of the same in stature and you know when that, he finally showed up and he started coming to spring training games of course he and miggy were always around and he Kind of mirrored Miggy and everything that he did, but it's tough for you know to give somebody that tag of uh, mini Miguel Cabrera. We just talked about Miguel Cabrera; he's one of the best baseball players that I've ever watched on this planet. So there aren't many of that compare to him. So that probably was unfair uh, to Garcia in those early days. But I saw a talented kid with a very strong arm. He had some power that he hadn't realized yet, but he has realized that power as of late last few years in Milwaukee. Uh, but just a really good player, really good uh, worker, because he learned from Miguel. He learned how to take body practice. He learned how to drive that ball the other way. We're going to see, obviously, he'll hit some home runs to right field. And there's no doubt he learned that from Miggy, how to hit the ball to right field in body practice, instead of just launching home runs like so many guys do in the big leagues. Uh, but I watched him mature as a man. Uh, he didn't have any kids when I first met him. Now, he's a father. He's a husband. Uh, he's matured. He's matured, and he turned into a really nice, uh, really nice citizen. I don't know. Uh, he's very happy to be in Miami. Also, had Marcus Thames uh, in in Detroit. He was right. the hitting coach now for uh, the Tigers, and I watched Marcus play. He was a DH for uh, on those really good teams when Jim Leland was the skipper. He was a favorite of Jim Leland, and I don't know if many people know this about Marcus Thames, but he hit the very first pitch that he saw in the big leagues for a home run against Randy Johnson. So uh, that's what Marcus Thames did uh, in the big leagues. So I mean, there's just uh, so many guys that I know in baseball, and those are just two of the guys, but. Uh, You asked the question about Garcia. It's been fun to watch him uh, grow. And I know he's going to get better. It looks like he's pressing a little bit to me right now, you know, trying to prove, you know, the contract and all that kind of stuff. But he's a really good baseball player and a really good citizen. He's going to be great uh, for the city of Miami and the state of Florida.
1: Yeah. Flipping that around to the players that have gone off to a hot start. So we're recording this 12 games into into the year, five and seven a lot of close games that they played, even when they've lost. So, I mean, overall the, the performance has been at least better than last year. It's been a step in the right direction. Who are some of the guys that have kind of surprised you a little bit in unexpected ways? You were, you were at spring training. Um so You were able to, as much as you can, you know, understand who these guys are, but a lot of them, um, especially on the pitching side are pretty young guys who don't even have a long track record. So there's only so much that you can learn until the, the, real lights flip on and the real game start. Who have been some of the bright spots that have stuck out to you?
0: Well, I mean, as you said, I was on a press course when uh, I finally was told that I was going to be fortunate enough to be one of the broadcasters for the Marlins. I got down to strength training uh, pretty much after that lockout lifted and I had to learn the entire organization, not only players, but all the front office people too. And, and they've been wonderful to me. Everybody's welcomed me with open arms. I, I feel like I couldn't be in a better place, but Uh, As far as the players are concerned, obviously, Sanchez, the center fielder, comes to mind. I had heard he had tremendous power. I watched him a little bit last year. He's gotten off to a terrific start. I just love the way that he plays the game. I love his calming influence. I love the fact that he likes to read. He likes to study. So he likes to calm his mind. So I don't think he's going to have any prolonged slumps or any of those kinds of things jazz chisholm is a star in the making this guy will be an all-star and he will win a gold glove he has a chance to hit 25 and steal 25 and you could take it even a step further he can go 30 30 he reminds me of a young eric davis when i saw young eric davis you know with all that power that real slim frame and that ability to steal bases i don't think he'll steal as many bases as eric did be because that's something that they did back in those days uh, but i just love jazz and, and i know that he makes a few mistakes here and there and he's flashing And he's stylish, but I got no problem with that either. I mean, that's just what the young kids uh, like to do these days. I mean, I like the sign of Joy Wendell. Uh, Obviously, you have to like Soler. You have to like Garcia in right field. Even though they're not playing all that well right now, from an offensive standpoint, they will turn the corner. Aguilar has got some real nice leadership skills. Uh, You have to love the story of Stallings behind the plate. I mean, a career minor leaguer, basically, who got to the big leagues because Chris Archer wanted him as his everyday catcher, and he turns himself into a gold glover. So, in the pitching side, Pablo Lopez has been so impressive. He reminds me of Anibal Sanchez. I said this on the air the other day with that changeup. You guys know Anibal. Uh, he pitched for the Marlins through a no-hitter. He struck out 17, won an ERA title. He looks just like Pablo to me on the mound. That's just me. And, of course, Sandy's special. The entire rotation is special. I haven't gotten a chance to meet all the bullpen guys, I'm in Atlanta as we speak and I'm going to do radio for the next six days and I'm going on the early bus today and my goal is to learn and meet every reliever because I pretty much have talked to a lot of the starters, talked to all the position players. Now I get a chance to meet all the relievers. I've watched a lot of them. They got some power arms in the back of that bullpen and Bender and Bass and, and some of those guys that have just done a really good job in the early going. So I, I just think that Anything can happen. I know a lot of people aren't picking the team to be really, really good this year, but I've been on some teams and been a part of some teams where you just get on a roll, man. You just start winning some games and the next thing you know, you get the trade deadline, you're making, a, a, you're making some acquisitions instead of you know trading people away and you can kind of ride that into the postseason. I mean, there will be 12 teams in the postseason this year. So uh, that's my, uh, and Donnie Manning, also a really good friend of mine. We played together uh, in Puerto Rico way back in uh, 1983. We were teammates on the the Coglas team, Coglas Creoles, I think was the, the name yeah. of our team. So I go I way it. back with Donnie Maddick. And that makes it help. Uh, that makes it easy, too, for a guy like myself that you know so many people like him and the willing to pay in the bullpen coach. And you can get the information that you need, that you can give the listeners a true assessment of what's going on beyond the field. Because I can tell you what's going on on the field, but it's always nice to have somebody that will tell you some other things that, and they trust you.
1: Yeah, of course, in that big answer, you did touch on the starting pitching and uh the great rotation that they have. And I've been the people that listen to me a lot, I kinda I'm a little I kind of pump the brakes a lot before getting too excited about certain things. I love the depth of the rotation and how like every single night they put a guy out there that I can trust to like give them a decent outing. I think the question is kind of the upside of these pitchers, which of them do they reach that ultimate potential that they have? And I thought you'd be like the great person to ask about that because in Detroit, you saw Justin Verlander from the very beginning, go all the way from a rookie to the MVP of the league uh, from Max Scherzer, who was really kind of an unproven guy when the Tigers acquired him and he goes to be a perennial Cy Young and future hall of fame sort of guy. But what is it that separates players from being, you know, pretty good starting pitcher, a consistent one, even an all-star from being at the kind of level that Scherzer and Verlander reach, because that's ultimately going to be so important for this Marlins team to have somebody, at least at the top of the rotation, that is dominant. It's not just good, but dominant.
0: Well, supreme confidence, uh, first and foremost, uh, when Verlander showed up in, in 2006, uh, he and Joe Zamaya—Zamaya was another one of the rookies that was on that uh a Tigers team in 06 that went to the World Series, and those were two young rookies that were outstanding. Verlander, uh, you could see he would be very, very talented with a fast forward about to 100 miles an hour. But I think what uh, separated Verlander is the fact that he always had some offense around him. Dave Dragoski had always built some really good offensive teams. So I don't think Verlander had to pitch in all that much stress early on in his career. Of course, Sandy's pitching in a lot of stress, he doesn't get a lot of run support. But Sandy can win an all-star. Sandy can make an all-star team, there's no doubt. Sandy can win a Cy Young. He has that kind of stuff with the velo, getting up to 101 and that unhittable changeup in the slider. If he puts it all together for 25 starts, there's no question he can win a Cy Young. I told you about Pablo and how fond I am of him and the way he goes about his business. On many nights, Sanchez was funner for me to watch pitch than Verlander and Scherzer just the way that he would carve up the lineup. You know what Scherzer is going to do. He came into his own in Detroit. Number one pick back in Arizona. They always thought he was going to break down because of his mechanics and you know the flailing elbows and different things like that. But all he has done is turned himself into a perennial Cy Young Award winner, a World Series champion, and he's going to be a Cy Young. I mean, he's going to be uh, in the Hall of Fame as well. So we're talking about two Hall of Famers there. And I and when you start looking at this staff, you look at Luzardo. Obviously, he's very young, but a lot of people compare him to a young Johan Santana with that change-up the fastball up in the 90s. You never know where these guys can get to, especially if they're able to reel off 20-25 starts. Rogers, who's pitching tonight. There ain't many left-handers walking around, starting going 98 miles an hour with good change-ups. and breaking ball is still a work in progress. So you never know how it's going to turn out for these guys. I think what's going to help all of them is the offense. Once mm-hmm. the offense starts to roll a little bit, takes a little bit of stress off of Sandy. Sandy could have two wins by now. Uh, it with any kind of offense, what whatsoever. And, and you mentioned those two guys, Verlander and Scherzer, but David Price was also there in Detroit. And when I started my broadcast career, I had a chance to watch Randy Johnson win four straight. Cy Youngs and Kurt Schilling. So I've been okay. so fortunate to watch some really good pitching uh, in my broadcast career.
1: You did bring up the offense as we finish a couple questions here about how for the most part this year, it's been kind of up and down with a couple of games that have been tough. And we mentioned already Garcia getting off to a slow start individually. We're only 12 games into the season. As people listen to this, it's only going to be 15 games in like less than 10%. What is that part of the season that you get to as someone that's been through all these years that when you start really knowing what a team is, when do they start having to like think more seriously about making those adjustments in order to ultimately get this team to the playoffs? Because that's a pretty big goal that they have for themselves, and um, they need to make a decision whether eventually whether it's the current guys they have or whether they need some help from the outside.
0: Well, I mean, I think it. it you you know, you have to see. I mean, obviously, you mentioned the fact that more than fifteen games there, but there's some nice additions. I mean, you talked about Wendell, who can play anywhere. He's a really good baseball player, unselfish guy. You need those guys in your clubhouse, and he can really help you win some baseball games with the intangibles on the field. You watch Stallings basically earned the trust of the entire pitching staff in just over a month uh, with the way that he prepares and the way that he uh, calls games. We've talked about Garcia. We've talked about Soler. They're not off to great starts yet, but while they're still not necessarily getting it going, you got guys like Jazz Chisholm and Sanchez that are performing at a very high level right now, very elite level, and helping the team win some games. There's no doubt the offense is going to be better. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that they're going to be a much better team offensively so that's just the key and I love jazz choosing at the top I was waiting to see how long it would take I know they kept saying the right things about him being in that nine hole would be better and so Lair just looked like he was kind of squeezing the sawdust out of the bat in that leadoff spot and I like the way the offense runs there you got left at the top it's got some speed if he gets on you can steal and he can also get you on the board with a home run early so I think the lineup that they had last night is a little bit better for me, but I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't think Jazz will lead off every day, but I definitely like him at the top of the lineup, and I think it's a better team with him at the top, my personal opinion.
1: Right. You mentioned just a little bit ago about how you're on this road trip, calling the games on the radio, right? Um, right. So I'm curious about that. Obviously, most of your broadcasting career has been on TV. You've done excellent at that. How is it different? How is it more challenging? How is it um, – how, how have you been preparing for that compared to what you would normally do for TV broadcast?
0: Well, I mean, it's like riding a bike uh, for me, to be honest with you. and you know, I don't mean to be cocky about it uh, by any stretch of the imagination. To be a good broadcaster, uh, you have to put in a tremendous amount of work. You have to talk to people. You have to study. I mean, I've been up studying all day watching MLB network. I mean, I've been studying the Braves website. I studied the Marlins website. So I can have as much knowledge as I can when I go into that broadcast. But then the game just kind of takes over. Uh, Glenn Geffner, I've known him for years, and uh, I've listened to him a lot. Uh, he makes all the analysts sound very, very good. He asks all the right questions. Uh, he brings you in to the broadcast. He doesn't uh, force you as an analyst to kind of find your own space. Uh, he asks a lot of questions, of course, on television. Uh, the pictures, they're visually for you to see, so you don't have to talk a whole lot about what they're seeing. but maybe you can give an antidote or something about what they might not see, maybe first guess. Uh, of something that's going to happen in a baseball game from uh, a television standpoint. Radio, you pretty much get in, you get out. The play-by-play guy does the majority of the talking. Every now and then, there's an extended period of time for the analyst to get in. But for the most part, you're just kind of getting in and getting out, just kind of adding to what he does uh, as far as the play-by-play is concerned. You don't want to talk over pitches. I'm sure I'll do that a couple of times tonight because I'm a little antsy to get back in the radio booth. But that's where I got my start. And uh, I did a few radio games last year for the Arizona Diamondbacks. So uh, it's not foreign to me. Uh, it's baseball. And, and I love talking baseball.
1: And we have a whole lot of baseball ahead. So 150 games. And and how many of those games do you think you're going to be on the call for? What's the schedule looking like for you versus? I don't know.
0: Maybe, maybe close to 100, I think. You know I mean? Because I have a combination of uh, uh, some television broadcasts that I'll do. And uh, I'm doing pre and post game shows. And uh, and I'm doing some radio as well. So. Um, I think at the end of the day, it might uh, end up being uh, around a hundred and you just never know. Sometimes guys need base off here and there. Maybe I do well enough that they might add me in here or there.
1: <laughs> We're excited. to get to listen to you for better or worse, uh, just having baseball back, but pretty high expectations for this team. So, hopefully more wins and losses that you're on the call for. This has been Rod Allen, Valley Sports Florida, and from Marlins Radio. So we're going to be listening to you on this road trip, always enjoying your studio work that you've done so far. This has been Eli Sussman for the official show, and this has just been such a pleasure to talk to you, Rod. Uh, Thanks so much for the time.
0: Oh, well, thank you for having me. And as I said before, I, I, I expect this team to do some special things because we talked about some special players, and trust me, Uh, there are a lot of managers in baseball that are talking about how talented this group is. So hopefully it all comes together for him. We can have a really fun summer talking about uh, uh, some, some good baseball. I look forward to seeing you again, buddy. Thanks for having me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. My pleasure. You can follow Rod. He's great on social media, both on Instagram and on Twitter. So be sure to follow him over there, keep up with him. And uh, I'm sure by the time everybody's listening to this, celebrating Miggy reaching 3000 career hits, a career that started in florida almost 20 years ago and finally reaching this great milestone so next stop after that is is cooper's (laughs) down right after he decides to retire no
0: doubt about that